welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, I'd like to inform all participants that today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. You have been placed in listen-only mode until today's question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question at that time, please press star 1. Please make sure that your phone is unmuted and record your name and your affiliation when prompted. I would now like to turn the call over to your host, the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Thank you, ma'am. You may begin. Thank you, Operator, and good afternoon uh, to those uh, on the East Coast of the United States. Good evening, uh, good middle of the night, or wherever else you may be tuning in uh, to the Wilson Center's 161st Ground Truth Briefing. Discussions like uh, this afternoon's, which cut across several of our regional programs, are the reason we have been named the number one think tank in uh, in the world for regional studies. Three, I messed that up. The number one think tank in the world for regional studies three years in a row. Our Brazil Institute, Middle East Women's Initiative, Maternal Health Initiative, Latin America Program. Uh, Mexico Institute and Kennan Institute are collaborating on this important discussion on the staggering global rise in gender-based violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. The novel coronavirus has already killed more than 350,000 people around the world. Uh, you know that we hit the 100,000 milestone in the U.S. yesterday, and many more are still struggling to recover. Millions of families have been affected. Yet as the virus continues to spread, it has been followed by a so-called shadow pandemic, an alarming rise in violence against women and girls. Shelter-in-place orders implemented across much of the globe have laid bare the truth that for many women and girls, the most dangerous place uh, she, they, can be is in her, their own home. Domestic violence reports are up 30%, 30%, in France, Cyprus, and Singapore, to name just a few countries, and many experts believe the situation will worsen. At the same time, prevention efforts and essential services for women are being compromised. In El Salvador, strict lockdowns have left women afraid to leave home to report violence for fear of police harassment or arrest. Elsewhere, women's shelters are closing or reducing capacity due to concerns over contagion. Police stations and courthouses are operating at reduced hours, which limits access to restraining orders and other important protective measures. Even before COVID-19, 243 million, let me say that again, 243 million women and girls aged 15 to 49 had been subjected to sexual and or physical violence by an intimate partner in the last year. This is outrageous and must be stopped. While I served in Congress uh, during nine terms, I was an early uh, co-sponsor of the Family and Medical Leave Act. In fact, it was the first law I voted for uh, when I was elected uh, in 1993. And I also strongly support the Women, the Violence Against Women Act, uh, which provides services for victims of domestic violence and also work to end child marriage. I was an early advocate against the epidemic of rape and sexual assault in our military. And as ranking member uh, on the House Intelligence uh, Committee, I routinely insisted that women's rights and health are vital to national security and to the success of our country. Um, So together with many talented policy experts who happen to be women, 
I am proud to continue advocating for women and girls throughout the Wilson Center. Earlier this year, we announced a new initiative to focus on gender-based violence in Latin America and the barriers to justice that women face. We know that attitudes toward gender and violence are deeply ingrained, uh, but the first step to changing them is to become aware. Through events like today's and our ongoing work, our experts intend not only to shed light on the scale of this challenge, but also to envision the path forward. makes me so proud to work at the Wilson Center and to see what the, the women, the talented women and talented men do here. And introducing our stellar panel of women, uh, in, uh, in, uh, <laughs> our stellar panel, including some former Wilson Fellows and our, our wonderfully talented Marissa Horma of our Middle East program, is Anya Prusa, Senior Advisor to, at the Brazil Institute and the coordinator of our Gender-Based Violence in Latin America initiative. Please join me in welcoming Anya Prusa. And again, thanks to all of you uh, uh, panelists and Anya uh, for really making the Wilson Center shine and shining light on this incredibly horrible worldwide problem. Over to you, Anya. Thank you, Jane, for your introduction and for your support of the Wilson Center's ongoing work in this area. It is so important to stress that COVID-19 has impacted women around the world in numerous ways, and the rise of gender-based violence is just one facet, but it is one that demands urgent attention and policy responses. As Jane mentioned, the Wilson Center has launched a new project, Accessing Justice, Femicide, and the Rule of Law in Latin America to explore this issue and put together best practices. And I'm proud to be coordinating that work along with my colleagues Beatriz Garcia-Nice of the Latin America Program and Olivia Soledad of the Mexico Institute. Latin America has some of the highest rates of sexual violence and femicide in the world, and many of these cases go unpublished. But gender-based violence is not confined to Latin America. To discuss the global nature of this issue, we have a panel today whose expertise ranges from Latin America to the Middle East and Eastern Europe and Eurasia. First, we have Leah Jimenez, the Division Chief of the Innovation and Citizen Services Program at the Inter-American Development Bank, who recently led a series of four sub-regional dialogues on gender-based violence and COVID-19. She was also the first woman to be appointed Minister of Finance in Paraguay. Marissa Corma is project manager of the Middle East Special Initiatives at the Wilson Center, including the Middle East Women's Initiative, and was a non-resident fellow at the International Security Program at New America. Laura Dean is assistant professor of political science and the Williams Professor in Global Studies at the Millikan University and an expert in gender-based violence and human rights in Eurasia. She's a former scholar at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Our moderator, Allison Brisk, is the Melichan Professor of Global Governance at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and also a former fellow at the Wilson Center. A human rights expert, she is the author of The Struggle for Freedom from Fear, Contesting Violence Against Women at the Frontiers of Globalization. We'll have a Q&A later in the call. If you have a question for our panelists, press star one at any point during this conversation. And I would also encourage all of you to check out the work that the Wilson Center is doing on this topic. You can go to wilsoncenter.org slash gender-based violence, where you can subscribe to receive updates and invitations to events like this one. Allison, I'm going to turn it over to you. 
Thank you so much, Anya, for the introduction. Uh, thank you so much to Jane also for the context, and above all to the Woodrow Wilson Center, which is where I initiated the research for the book that, that's been mentioned. I'm going to give just a few framing remarks uh, based on the framework that I developed in the book, which involved five or six years of research all over the world. I focused on cases of Brazil, India, South Africa, the Philippines, and Turkey, and above all found that gender-based violence, which does uh, is estimated to affect uh, one out of three women in the world, according to the World Health Organization, is a social pathology. It is not just a tragedy. It is not just an individual pathology. And that we can analyze, interpret in order to intervene more effectively by looking at this as a product of what we call a gender regime. That is a complex of rules and roles about power and uh, consciousness and the use of violence around men, women, and family um, ties. And these are related to the overall social structures of power production and increasingly of globalization. So if we think about this kind of overall structure, we can begin to process the effect of the pandemic and why we are seeing this increase under these conditions. Some of the identified drivers or triggers at the national community and individual household level include economic stress, crowding, and isolation. And I would add also that even at the individual um, psychosocial level, when there is any kind of condition like an international conflict um, or any kind of external threat to a community, we see as the level of fear rises, the level of internalized violence rises. This is just typical worldwide. As was mentioned in the beginning, um, we are also seeing reports worldwide, and these are, of course, under reports, and yet we are getting multiple sources. This is the, the scholarship uh, that comes not just from police sources, but also from health agencies, from nonprofits, from women's movements and service providers on the ground. And we're seeing uh, the, the Women's Stats database, which I want to recommend, has been tracking increased reports uh, through from China, from France, from the U.S., and from Singapore particularly. Um, so we know that uh, the pandemic is affecting drivers. It's affecting incidents as we analyze this social pathology. And we're going to hear more reports from on the ground from the Middle East, Latin America, and Eurasia, Eastern Europe, specifically tracking some of the regional patterns. The other thing, though, that I want to call to your attention is that in the, the book, that I wrote, I wanted to analyze this pattern and specifically some of the changes with globalization and now tracking the aspect of globalization in the pandemic. But I also tried to identify and to summarize the experience of the global, national, and um, NGO and social movement interventions. And, and what we see. Um, we know, for example, that individual-level psychologically-based interventions are not particularly effective unless they are coupled with broader processes of social change. 
So there are four kinds, streams of interventions that I examined and that previous scholars have tracked across the globe. And they include um, mobilization, that is forming movements, programs, NGOs, community support. They include, of course, changes in law, and we can notably look at the introduction of femicide laws across Latin America that I think one of our speakers will address. We can look at public policy of other sorts beyond law about impact of education and media on that. Um, so just as we look at the specific impact of the pandemic conditions on some of the triggers, we also have to look, as uh, Congresswoman Harmon introduced, uh, the impact of the pandemic on some of the availability of the interventions. Uh, we know clearly that policing is less available, that leadership is distracted, that uh, legislation can't be implemented in the same way. But I think that something else we need to pay a lot more attention to is that some of the public policy interventions and some of the public policy interdependency in our interventions, particularly in the developing world and in the emerging economies, where uh, crowding and economic stress are particularly significant drivers, that when we have things like interruptions in supply chains and disruption of transportation and shifts in employment, that, that these are going to be a particularly uh, difficult impact on that channel of response. Um, and um, I do want to point out that we are seeing some attempts at compensation and positive response particularly in Canada, in France, where they are coming up with different kinds of alert systems for women who are isolated in lockdown, for example, to um, have a special kind of reporting in a pharmacy that, that they may be the only public space they have access to, or to provide economic compensation funds to um, help survivors of domestic violence that might otherwise be especially economically displaced. So given all that, um, I am really looking forward to these regional presentations and our regional presenters are going to be, in each case, going through the uh, characteristics of the problem and how it's been changed by the pandemic in their region, what they see happening in terms of the specific impacts on those drivers that we've identified in worldwide research, and, of course, also the way in which pandemic conditions are reshaping the response mechanisms. I do want to remind you that if you press star one, you can get into the queue to ask a question. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to try to leave ample time for uh, your participation. And I want to thank you all for your attendance at this difficult time for this important issue. So turning turning it over then to um, to Leif Menes from the Inter American Development Bank. 
Thank you, Jane, Anya, Alison, uh, for the context uh, and introduction. Good afternoon, everyone. It is a pleasure to, to join this important conversation. I want to thank the Wilson Center for inviting us to speak about this extremely important and pressing issue. At the Inter-American Development Bank, we are committed to fighting gender-based violence in all its forms. Um, at the IDB's institutions for development sector, and particularly from the Division for Innovation in Citizen Services, we work to strengthen all institutions. And in the case of fighting gender-based violence, we work with institutions to better prevent, mitigate, and address crime and violence. The IDB is strongly committed to supporting countries curb gender-based violence particularly now in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is a multidimensional challenge. At the IDB, we have several teams tackling the issue from, from its different angles. Uh, for instance, while my division works directly with the police and the judiciary system, other teams are actively working with their counterparts with a focus on health and social protection. To give you an example, uh, a well-trained police force uh, is able to intervene appropriately in domestic violence situations, but this intervention must be accompanied by specific social programs and public health policies. Latin America is the region in the world with the highest feminicide rate, nothing to be proud of. More than 4% of women are killed by their partners per 100,000 persons. That's almost double the world's average. This is a tremendous human tragedy with important physical, psychological, social, and economic consequences. Today, many are calling this a pandemic within a pandemic, and that's really not an overstatement. With regards to the economic consequences, a few years ago we published a report called The Cause of Crime, where we estimated that women homicides alone were costing Latin America over 3% of the regional GDP. Globally, the cost of gender-based violence is estimated to be around 1% of global GDP. And I would like to focus first on common drivers and pandemic conditions. Home is not a safe place for many women in our region. The stay-at-home measures have excited a high toll from people that live with their abusers. Stay-in-place orders limit the ability of domestic violence victims to communicate with the outside world and to seek help, as well as for persons and agencies to proactively identify and support victims. In periods of prolonged stress and economic difficulty, the probability of violence in the home increases. We have seen this before, for example, in the wake of natural disasters or humanitarian disasters. This is all too common. Unfortunately, this global emergency has not been an exception. The preliminary data that we have been monitoring indicates an increase uh, of domestic violence during the COVID-19 in many countries. Mexico, for instance, has reported a 60% increase in the calls related to gender-based violence. In Colombia, the domestic violence hotline has reported a 91% increase in call volume as compared to the same period last year. The, the data 
speaks volume, and so does the absence of data. And let me explain what I mean by this. In some countries, domestic violence reports have decreased. This does not mean less cases of gender-based violence necessarily. Rather, it could be a red flag pointing to the difficulties that victims have reporting violence and accessing help while confined with their abusers. In other words, this is a particularly delicate time for victims of domestic violence, and we need to be particularly sensitive to potential underreporting. With regards to responses of governments and international agencies in the region, responding to domestic violence during the current COVID-19 emergency requires finding innovative ways to deliver key citizen services. In LAC, many government efforts have been centered on reinforcing and expanding existing reporting services such as telephone helplines. For instance, uh, Argentina's national hotline for gender-based violence reporting was enhanced to allow receipts for calls via WhatsApp and email. In other instances, governments have developed new modalities for responding to domestic violence that are particularly effective in the current context. The Colombian government, for example, has developed partnership with supermarkets and pharmacies to make those shops a safe space for victims. They train store employees to provide frontline assistance to domestic violence victims and establish protocols for formally reporting violence to police. Another important measure that we have seen in Latin America uh, revolves around communication. Many governments have stepped up their game, expanded the communication campaigns into non-traditional channels such as WhatsApp and social media. This allows them to reach out to more potential victims as well as to give victims or witnesses the opportunity to report violence episodes through low-risk channels. And these good examples of multi-channel communication campaign uh, are those from Argentina called You Are Not Alone, and Colombia uh, is called, if you stay home, let's stay connected. And apart from offering support networks for victims, these two programs alert, alert neighborhoods and family members in case they are able to support victims with information and access to social services. In other countries, such as Argentina, Uruguay, uh, they have extended automatically all restraining orders for abusers to make sure that nothing falls under the crack, given limited government operations in some areas. The truth, the truth, as we know, is that we live unprecedented times, and many governments are operating on a trial and error basis. Our institution is trying to help them bridge the knowledge gap. For example, we have organized a series of sub-regional technical dialogues to precisely support governments to identify key issues and best practices related to addressing gender-based violence during the pandemic. So far, we have shared experiences with governments from the Southern Corn, the Andean region, South, Amer uh, South America, uh, the Caribbean region, and only yesterday we completed this uh, series with an event uh, for governments from Central America and Mexico. There are three important takeaway, takeaways that emerge from these technical dialogues. The first, better data is needed. To adequately address violence in Latin America and the Caribbean homes, we need more and better data. 
For example, one area that experts are looking at is proactive identification of perpetrators and, in turn, proactive deployment of measures to reduce the likelihood of them committing violence. Perpetrators vary in the severity and frequency of their violence. Interventions should, therefore, be adaptable. Developing strategies to better identify perpetrators and the risk level requires robust data collection. Frequently, risk factors can be better predicted using data that goes beyond police records. That's why if we want to have a coordinated response against gender-based violence, we should build better information sharing systems and we should have better response coordination mechanisms in place across government agencies. And this includes health, labor, and education ministries. The second takeaway is that we cannot afford not to take advantage of technology. The confinement regulations in many countries mean that the accessibility to in-person reporting options has been drastically reduced. Technology has the potential to facilitate reporting even with the obstacles imposed by stay-at-home restrictions. As I mentioned before, telephone lines and WhatsApp services have become a lifeline for victims. In Chile and certain states of Brazil, police stations have implemented online reporting, including the online transmission of photographic evidence to facilitate and fast-track police responses. The third takeaway is that the human capital component remains fundamental. We can have technology and we can have improved data collection. Both of them are crucial tools in the fight against gender-based violence. But at the end of the day, their effectiveness depends on having personnel being adequately trained to use them and to take advantage of these tools appropriately. The quality of treatment provided by first responders, be it a police officer, a 911 operator, or a doctor at a hospital, is essential to ensuring victims receive the necessary support. And let me be a little more precise here. Necessary support goes way beyond the prosecution of abusers. It also includes providing a range of appropriate psychosocial services to help victims recover from the psychological, physical, and emotional harm that they have endured. The response of families, neighbors, community members, and community organizations also play a crucial role in tackling gender-based violence. Just as governments all around the world have trained citizens to report suspicious behavior, suspicious packages in public places, we must also train them to report potential cases of domestic violence. The classic, if you see something, say something, also applies in this case. And to conclude, I would like to stress the fact that gender-based violence is an issue that concerns all of us. The exchange of ideas and knowledge between public and private sectors, institutions, and academia allows us to better identify innovative strategies and promote synergies to prevent, mitigate, and address gender-based violence. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to take part in this important conversation, 
which is really time sensitive. My hope uh, is that in spite of the COVID-19 crisis and the painful impact it has had on our daily lives across the world, we turn this into an opportunity to fine-tune and deploy tools and strategies to fight and hopefully eradicate the terrible disease that gender-based violence is for once and for all. On behalf of the IDV, rest assured that we will keep working so that no one in Latin America or the Caribbean lives in fear. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much, um, Ms. Menes, and um, that has been very uh, comprehensive, fascinating, and uh, revealing of, of what's going on in Latin America and how it fits into the global panorama and the general patterns that we've been beginning to analyze. I'd like to turn now to uh, Marissa Korma from the Woodrow Wilson Center Mideast program to look at the patterns in the region of the Middle East. Thank you so much, Allison, um, and thanks to Anya, and special thanks to Congresswoman and Harmon for joining us today and for all your support. Um, for First of all, it's, it's important to set the baseline for the MENA region with, where Sadly, gender-based violence is nothing new. Um, so according to UN Women, 37% of Arab women have experienced some form of violence in their lifetime. In Iran, um, according to a 2017 study referenced by Human Rights Watch, 32% of Iranian women in urban centers and 63% in rural areas have also experienced some form of domestic violence. This is the situation pre-pandemic. Now enter COVID-19. Akin to a global trend that Allison talked about, and we've just heard from Leah, that outlined the situation in Latin America, the Middle East and North Africa region has also seen an unfortunate increase in gender-based violence, specifically domestic violence against women. The movement restrictions in place in most MENA societies, um, which many of which have been extremely strict with very strict curfews, the self-isolation measures, as well as the pressure of economic distress that families are facing with the impact of COVID has certainly created a fertile environment for domestic abuse. Exposing women and young girls to unsafe situations where they're forced to cohabitate with their abusers, be it a spouse or another male member of the family, father, brother, or relative. Across the MENA region, um, the governments, but especially the civil society organizations working to protect and prevent such violent instances, have reported an uptick in the number of calls being made to hotlines. So just to give you a sense of some of the numbers um, from a few MENA countries, according to news reports, um, some international reports primarily led by the UN, but also from some of the conversations I've had recently with a few women activists. Keep in mind, the data I'll be sharing are very likely understated as many women and girls either do not have access to a phone or to the internet to report, or simply feel unsafe to make such calls to existing hotlines. So in Lebanon, according to ABAD, a human rights organization focused on gender equality, calls to domestic violence hotlines increased by 110% in March compared to the same period last year. And to date, 11 women have been killed as a result of domestic violence since the start of the lockdown. In Jordan, the number of domestic violence 
against women, as shared by Al-Mamlaka TV, has also increased 33% compared to the same period last year. Further in Jordan, um, and this is you know, particularly honing in on refugee host countries, as you know, Jordan hosts more than a million Syrian refugees. Refugee women, especially those living in refugee camps, remain to be the most vulnerable to threats of domestic violence. In Tunisia, the, women, the Ministry of Women's Affairs set up a hotline, um, as well as other NGOs and women activists who have been using Facebook and other social media platforms to set up ways to communicate with survivors, has also seen um, calls to these hotlines increase fivefold only in the first few days of the lockdown. In Israel, news reports noted that not only have we seen um, calls to hotlines on the rise, but shelters were also at 90 to 95% capacity, according to the Ministry of Social Affairs, and that was back in mid-March, less than two weeks into the lockdown. In Iran, women rights activists have also noted a dramatic increase in domestic abuse, which prompted even the government, primarily the, um, um, the Minister of Women and Family Affairs, to speak out against the phenomenon and send out a tweet with information to victims to call a, a hotline number. According to Shahla Intasari, who is an Iranian women's rights activist, the pandemic has specifically had adverse impacts on vulnerable families and poor households. And this is a trend that we've seen in other parts of the region. So this is a very quick snapshot of a much more widespread problem that, um, as we've seen in other regions, um, in most of the MENA countries, they go undetected. But particularly during a pandemic, the challenges to make such a call um, particularly limit the ability of governments and NGOs to really know the extent of the problem. Alison, you also talked about some of the drivers and you asked us to address that. Um, in terms of the drivers, the two main drivers that work in the MENA region, and you've already um, touched upon these, Alison, in your introduction. The first, I've already mentioned, um, the pressures of the lockdown, both social and economic, that basically kept girls and women at home with their abusers. And secondly, the impact of the lockdown um, and, and the strict curfews in place. Um, on the ability of NGOs especially to provide services to victims, to drive to find some of these women and give them shelter. Um, governments have also been prioritizing other aspects of the pandemic in the name of public health safety. Um, and so, unfortunately, gender-based violence was not at the top of their agenda. And I'd like to add here that in addition to the disruption of national and, and local programs that are run by either the government, government entities or NGOs because of the pandemic. One of the challenges we see is that women are simply not at the highest table in government, in the public sector. They're not in positions of authority, and even more rarely are they included in national crisis management committees such as those set up by COVID-19, which is how very easily um, issues such as violence against women are just dropped from the agenda for action. And this renders response efforts very ad hoc and uncoordinated, which is a challenge that Leah just talked about in Latin America. If anything, um, and I'm happy to answer more questions and go into more details, but I think this pandemic has shed light 
on many of the already existing gaps, particularly uh, these gender gaps in men's societies. The hope moving forward, um, and I will share the, the hope that Leah outlined, is that this pandemic provides an opportunity by making this alarming phenomenon of gender-based violence an urgent public health safety issue to address. Thank you, and I'll um, happy to answer questions later. Thank you so much, and Marissa, and um, very interesting to hear some of the similarities and some of the differences in the Middle East and some of the responses there at the governmental and community level. Um, now we will turn to Laura Dean, and she will talk to us about, um, you know, Eurasia, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and some of the emerging patterns there in increases in gender-based violence during the pandemic. Thanks so much. Um, so I just also wanted to thank the Kennan Institute and the Wilson Center for this opportunity. I'm actually calling in to this call from Riga, Latvia. I was on the ground researching gender-based violence in politics when the pandemic hit um, and the borders subsequently closed. So um, it gave me an interesting opportunity, kind of a view from the ground to look at the issue of gender-based violence um, in this region. And so I'll offer kind of a bit of my impressions about larger issues in the region, um, but know that it's informed by me actually being in the region currently. So, um, so similar to other regions of the world, my region of Eurasia, which includes Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia, has seen an alarming increase of domestic violence since the pandemic began. In Kazakhstan, the Union of Crisis Centers said reports of domestic violence in April increased fourfold compared to February before the lockdown started there. In Kyrgyzstan, the Bishkek Commandant said the reports of domestic violence are up 62% compared to last year. Additionally, the International Human Rights Center Lestrada in Ukraine, the Russian Commissioner for Human Rights, and Marta Center, where I am here in Latvia, are all reporting more than two-fold increases in domestic violence cases during the pandemic in their respective countries. However, the story from police in Russia is very different. In an interview on Russian television, the Ministry of Internal Affairs reported that the number of crimes related to domestic violence actually remained stable for the first part of the year um, and decreased compared to last year. So I think this kind of has to do a little bit with, Leo, with what Leah was talking about in the absence of data. Um, so NGOs and some government agencies are seeing a significant increase in hotline calls and emergency calls to police for issues of domestic violence, while others claim that they are not a discrepancy that is clearly problematic when attempting to comprehensively address gender-based violence. And several organizations also mention the severity of the violence due to the pandemic, that it's not just about the surge of hotline calls, but also the increased level of violence and the intensity of the abuse, um, which has resulted in numerous deaths throughout the region. And it seems that we've heard of those cases in Latin America and the Middle East as well. So it's a surge of um, murders and deaths throughout the world. Uh, the drivers of violence in Eurasia during the pandemic are similar to what we've heard in, uh, in other parts of the world. Um, they're a result of things like gender norms, increasing economic inequality due to the pandemic, limits to women's independence and public life from the lockdowns, um, alcohol and substance abuse, which is a significant issue in the region of Eurasia, and the cultural practices, which envision gender-based violence as a private and not a public issue. There's a longstanding rift over values uh, particularly in Russia, between women's rights activists who see the worrying rise of gender-based violence and conservative opponents who argue that violence is, is a punishable offense and that violence in the family should not be singled out 
or even used as a term in Russian society. So conservative lawmakers and the Russian Orthodox Church go even further and contend that laws aimed at curbing domestic violence are an attempt to undermine traditional values. In fact, Radio Free Europe reported that conservative politicians have appealed to Russia's prosecutor general to investigate media outlets that are reporting the rise of domestic violence in that country during the pandemic and argue that such claims undermine marriage as an institution. Organizations in Eurasia have responded to the pandemic similar to, I think, what we've seen um, in the Middle East and Latin America. They're moving consultations online, they're moving support groups online, they're becoming more innovative in ways that they provide assistance to victims. Um, During the quarantine, a call uh, to the hotline could prompt aggression, and so victims can obtain assistance similar to what we've heard via Skype, Facebook Messenger, email, and feedback forms. Um, In Ukraine, the national hotline reported that 63% of all the calls came in at night. Um, when it was actually safer for survivors to obtain support. So the hours for their hotline have been extended as a result of the pandemic. And in Russia, we see something similar. There's a hotline run by the National Center for Prevention of Violence, ANA. Um, they couldn't answer all of the calls in the limited daytime hours at the beginning of the pandemic. And so thankfully, they received a grant um, to extend the hotline to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, Similar to what we've heard, shelter space has also been an issue. Um, Many shelters were actually full before the quarantine, and with social distancing requirements, space is even more limited. Um, We see also um, the organizations would house uh, victims in hotels, but many of the hotels have closed because of the lack of tourism, and there's uh, scarce funding for new apartments, especially outside of capital cities in this region. So before the pandemic, organizations could use their networks and find space in other regions, but with very strict travel bans, this is virtually impossible. Additionally, victims fleeing their abusers can't leave and travel to relatives in other regions during the lockdown measures, which essentially traps them in an abusive situation. Um, Many NGOs have said that they have two to three times as many women in need of shelter right now as they did before the pandemic. So this is a very, very pressing problem in this region. Organizations have also discussed how the police are not taking the violence seriously and sometimes do not even respond to emergency domestic violence calls. In Russia, victims are unable to leave due to these strict lockdown measures. So in March, nine Russian NGOs working with victims of domestic violence sent a letter to the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and they asked the police to immediately respond to reports of domestic violence. They asked them to ensure the safety of all victims and also to not hold the victims of domestic violence accountable for violating quarantine and self-isolation laws. In Russia, you can get about a 4,000 ruble fine, which is the equivalent of $55, um, if you violate the lockdown. And so thankfully, um, earlier this week, the ministry responded and said that victims of violence who violated the self-isolation regime in the state of emergency would not be liable. So that's a, a, a move in the right direction. But of course, implementation of this new policy in a country as large as Russia will be likely problematic. And this is really due to the partial decriminalization of domestic violence in Russia, which has reduced it to an administrative penalty um, and remain, and that's what basically has remained in force since 2017, despite numerous initiatives by NGOs and some advocates to recriminalize it. Um, they've been trying to do it since then. Um, there have been numerous reports of it being, you know, attempting to be introduced into the Duma, and thus far we haven't seen any results. Also, many countries in Eurasia um, have not 
uh, ratified the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, otherwise known as the Istanbul Convention. So the countries, Armenia, Latvia, Ukraine, Czech Republic, and um, are among others. So this convention includes measures um, in the field of prevention, support and care, and legal aid with civil and criminal law. So if ratified, these mechanisms in the convention could guide countries toward a more effective approaches and better implementation on gender-based violence in Eurasia. So those are my thoughts uh, from the ground in Eurasia, and I'm always happy to name and shame the countries that have not uh, assigned or ratified the Istanbul Convention. So if there's any questions on that, let me know. Thank you so much, Laura. I want to um, uh, let the audience know that we really are trying to reserve some time for these questions for this dialogue, but in order to get into the queue, the technology here is that you have to press star one. All right, so we know that several hundred people are attending. We are delighted that you're that you're here, and uh, we'd like to dialogue with you and take your questions, but you have to press star one so that we can see you and find you. Um, meanwhile, because uh, we we do have, I have uh, some questions, and uh, I think that our our host uh, Jane Harmon has a question. Uh, let me just uh, quickly go through um, uh, a, a little better response from each of the uh, panelists about what more the global community can do. Um, I think actually uh, Leah Jimenez, as a representative of the global community, has given us uh, a model there. So, but let me let me turn to uh, Marissa about the Middle East. Um, talked about national responses, and uh, to Laura, you you said you wanted to uh, talk a little more about the Istanbul Convention and and what what we as members and participants in the global community should be thinking about at that at that top level. Thank you, Allison. So, uh, um, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Allison. Um, I think what the global community is already doing is extremely helpful. Um, in the Middle East and North Africa region, in the absence of UN agencies and international NGOs working in protection and prevention, um, this issue is just not taken seriously by the government. And so the role that they play is instrumental in making sure that this is taken seriously by the government and that the government supports local NGOs working in this space. The, the issue of data is also crucial. Um, some of the numbers I cited were from different sources, which basically is testimony to the fact that we don't have a coordinated or coordinated entities or bodies um, in each uh, country that collect this data to understand the depth and breadth of the problem. And so the international community plays an, an, an instrumental role in funding a lot of these surveys um, and data collection projects just to get a better sense of what we're dealing with and how best we can address this. Um, to, uh, yeah, and, and I, I think we always talk about the, the role of the global community, but, but beyond that, I just want to turn the responsibility back to local governments um, because they have to be at the forefront of fighting this fight. Um, both at the governmental level, but particularly in supporting grassroots activities um, in this regard. 
Um, the Arab Barometer does excellent work. Um, the Arab Barometer is a project out of Princeton University does excellent work um, in collecting data across the Arab region to get a better sense of the different challenges. Um, and unfortunately, this issue of um, gender-based violence or d domestic violence in particular is seen as a very private family issue because the vast majority of women, according to some of the data by the Arab Barometer, um, about 88%, for example, turn to female or male relatives for support. And so even if the government has anything in place, this is completely pushed out um, of their scope of intervention. Um, and this is where also the international community or the global community come, can come into play to slowly work with local communities, with local NGOs, and support the work that they do. But really, local governments also have to take responsibility and move this up um, on the agenda and make it both a public health but also social safety issue. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Laura, can, can you uh, turn a bit to that? I, I, again, we've already heard a bit more about what's happening in Latin America via the very good work of the uh, IDB. Um, and now, and now for the Middle East. So let's let's fill in the picture about um, Central Central Asia and Eastern Europe. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, I would honestly advocate for the adoption and ratification of the Istanbul of the Istanbul Convention. So it's a Council of Europe convention that you know basically you know is implementing and looking at um, how countries and having specific requirements that countries must meet to be able to be parties to this convention. And so. It's been very controversial in Eastern Europe. Um, it's been adopted and ratified widely in Western Europe, but in Eastern Europe, um, there's basically a sticking point on the word gender, and many of the countries are afraid that by having this word gender in it that it's promoting LGBT initiatives. Um, and so I would say, you know, on the international level, if we could, um, you know, persuade governments to not only um, sign it, Azerbaijan and Russia have not signed it yet, but um, a lot of other countries have signed it but not ratified it. So I think that's something that the international community can do. Um, it will be interesting, I think, after the pandemic to see if the countries that did adopt the Istanbul Convention are actually more effective at fighting uh, domestic violence than countries that didn't. Um, so it would definitely make an interesting uh, experiment on the on the implementation of policy. Um, so yeah, so I would say that on the on, with the global community they could do that. But I also really agree with Marissa. So um, I've done research on policy implementation on the ground, and you can have you know the best policies in the world, but if local police and local NGOs aren't ready um, and willing to be able to implement those policies, then it's basically just a symbolic policy. And so I think you need those international policies and you need the national level policies in place, but they don't do anything unless they're actually implemented. So that involves training people how to identify domestic violence, you know, um, really like getting hotline numbers out there within the community um, and lots of different things. And so, yeah, so I think it needs to not be just the t a top-down international approach. I think it also needs to be a grassroots level kind of buy-in to the implementation of these different policies on domestic violence. Great. Thank you so much. Now we're going to turn to uh, Jane Harmon, who has uh, a, an intervention that, that she'd like to present. Well, thank you all, and especially thank you to the presenters. Um, <laughs> the picture you paint is uh, sobering uh, in every dimension. 
Uh, I just wanted to uh, add one more depressing fact and then ask a question. My depressing fact is the newspapers today uh, have information about an honor killing in Iran of a 14-year-old. That's under the age of people that uh, I cited uh, who were 15 to 49 who were subject to domestic uh, abuse. This 14-year-old apparently had run off with a 30-year-old man, uh, came back, was sleeping, and was beheaded by, by her father with a scythe. And, you know, you have to focus your mind on this. This is 2020. This isn't 1420. Um, so I know that's another huge cultural issue that has to be tackled. My question is, is this. Women's leadership. Uh, you were just talking about um, grassroots. I agree. You were talking about what international organizations can do. I agree. But we actually have women heading a few countries, uh, uh, one of which uh, used to be Latvia, uh, but also uh, Finland, New Zealand, uh, Germany, Estonia, uh, and hopefully more to come. And some in Latin America, too, have been headed by women. Uh, and uh, maybe in the U.S., not my lifetime, but in my granddaughter's lifetime, we'll have a woman later. But my point is, uh, women leaders of countries, how much difference can they make uh, in addressing this? May 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 I begin um, uh, kind of rolling back, although I didn't do a specific um, country or regional presentation. I, I am just coming out of, I was on a Taiwan fellowship in the fall uh, and looking at women's leadership. They have just renewed for the second time their first woman president, Tsai Ing-wen, and they have a stellar, outstanding record on coping with the pandemic and also on women's rights legislation and on attending to and responding to gender-based violence. That was what I went there to research. Um, of course, there are issues, but they really stand out within the region. They're, they're a leader in, in Asia. Uh, so I think, I think that that speaks to the question. Um, and, but now I'd, I'd like also to turn that to, um, to Leah, Marissa, Lara. Women's leadership. Uh, thank you so much. Um, well, I think that that's an excellent uh, uh, point. I think women leadership is key uh, into addressing this issue. We need more women in leadership. There is no doubt on that. Uh, I think as um, I believe um, Alison just mentioned uh, women do have a stellar record on focusing uh, not only on gender issues but also on social issues and, and, and policies that have a social impact. And I think that this is key. Uh, we definitely in Latin America need more women uh, making high-level decisions. But I think we also need to grasp the idea that gender-based violence affects everyone even if they are not a direct victim. And everyone includes men. So I think apart from having women leadership, which no doubt will have a positive impact on elevating this topic in the national agendas and the national policy agendas, I think that men have a crucial role to play. As much as they are part of the problem, they must be part of the solution. And I think I am very happy every time I see that when we talk about uh, issues such as 
uh, gender-based violence, we see more men stepping in and more men uh, trying to contribute to finding solutions into the issue. This is very important. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Marissa, do you want to weigh in on this question of women's leadership? Sure. Yes, very quickly. I, I agree with um, with Leah uh, when we see, and, and um, the research that you uh, cited, Alison, as well, um, the more women we see in leadership positions, particularly in the public sector, and not just at the very top table, but across the board, across functions, um, the more likely we will see better outcomes. Uh, research shows that there's a positive correlation with good governance and transparency, um, and certainly these, these topics will just be the top policy um, agenda. Um, however, there's a, in the Middle East and North Africa region, there's a long way to go there, um, and so the, the best approach um, as it stands is to, to continue the work that the, the, the grassroots organizations are doing um, and hopefully get more um, involvement and uh, uh, from, from the government uh, in order to support some of the work that they're doing. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Laura? Yep, I'm sorry, I just wanted to make sure you were going to call on me. Um, so, so yeah, so I mean, women's leadership is clearly integral. Um, I did a, uh, I wrote a book on human trafficking policy and I found that countries with higher levels of representation in parliament had better human trafficking policy. Um, also, yeah, I mean, just remember, just because you have great policy doesn't mean you're actually going to implement it. And there's also a huge difference between descriptive and substantive representation. Um, just because you have a critical mass of women in parliament doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to represent women. Um, as the re other panelists were talking, I was going through the countries that have not ratified. Um, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia, and Ukraine all have had female leaders in the executive, and they're all countries that have signed but not yet ratified the Istanbul Convention. So again, you need a critical mass of women, but you also need women in you know, parliament in the executive that are going to represent women's interests. So I think it's kind of a twofold um, approach. You know, first you can get women in politics, but then you actually need women to represent women's issues. We could also talk about what women's issues are, but I think that would be an entirely different panel. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. And um, I want to um, echo that as well. Um, I've done some work that, that suggests that uh, we have to look beyond uh, that women's leadership is certainly important, but uh, we look at a broader pattern of gender equity so we can have countries that are headed uh, nominally by a male but that have very high levels of gender equity across the board, let's say Canada, for example, that will have better policies on gender-based violence, better policies for women's needs and interests in general, and better policies on public health, education, um, and uh, better, better diplomacy, multilateralism. So I think that's that's another kind of broad finding of research that we should that we should all be attentive to. Um, so we are getting toward the end of our time. Um, again, if anybody wants to to jump into the queue, press star one, and uh, your audience voice can be heard. Um, if you press star one, but uh, we don't have anybody in the queue at this point. So um, I do want to just ask one closing question for each of the panelists. Um, you, you've each talked 
uh, a little bit about some problems and reporting problems and response that are due to the, the attitude part, the, the cultural roles and concepts um, that are part of the, the gender that help determine violence, that help determine response. And so we've heard things like um, the concepts of masculinity being involved with violence, concepts of femininity and, and uh, limits that women can't transgress or they will be punished with violence. Um, we also have programs to transform that. Oh, sorry, and the last piece of it is this, this notion that uh, gender violence and especially intimate partner violence is a private matter, shouldn't be brought into the public sphere. Um, and um, that tradition and culture requires that we not attend to the to crimes and violence against women. Um, I think that those ideas are being transformed all over the world and that this is a very important part um, and something that we are also challenged to keep track of in the pandemic. So I'd like each of you to just very, oh, whoops, now we have a cue. All right. Um, uh, well, we will uh, extend the call a few minutes for that. But first, if each of you could just very briefly tell me a little more about these, the, the cultural work, the work on the concept of what's private, what's public, what does gender mean, masculinity, femininity. Um, I know that the IDB actually has some programs in this regard. I know that this is a huge concept in the, in the Middle East. Um, let's, uh, let's very quickly uh, weigh in on that, and, and then we can uh, look, at, look at some of the audience questions. So, Leah Jimenez? Hello, have we? Yeah, should, should, we, should I just go first? I wasn't sure if you're calling on someone else. Hello? Hello, yes. Yeah, I can, uh, I can go first about the Middle yes, East. Yes, please. Um, yes, please. Okay, um, thank you for bring, bringing this up because this is um, definitely a central issue when discussing gender-based violence, but gender equality issues in general um, in the Middle East and North Africa region. Um, so beyond just looking at this as a pri private issue that should be dealt with within the confines of, of the family um, and extended family, um, this boils down to a patriarchal culture that is also institutionalized in the guardianship system. And so the, the, the male guardian um, is always there with the ultimate decision-making authority on issues pertaining to women. Um, research has shown, and, and there are various um, uh, reports on this, but for example, even when it comes to female labor participation in the MENA region, research has shown that the decision of a woman to enter the workforce and stay in the workforce after starting a family is not her own decision. It is a decision taken by her husband or her male guardian. So that is the, the extent of the patriarchal culture that really governs the way we look at gender equality and absolutely contributes to the extent, you know, the, the breadth of the gender-based violence issue. Um, according to the Arab barometer, um, the majority of men in Arab countries, about 70%, say that husbands and not the wives should have the final say on family decisions. 
And the women agree with that. Um, not all the women, not as high as 70%, but half of them agree that these decisions have to be made by the male guardian or of you know the male guardian of the household. Um, and so this is where the problem begins. What needs to be done? I think UN Women, in coordination and in partnership with a lot of a lot of local NGOs, have been doing a lot of good work in this uh, in this regard. Uh, it starts with education. Um, it starts with ensuring that curricula are gender positive in terms of references to both girls and boys. Um, the media has an important role to play to ensure that stories of women are told, stories of success, to to see them in different positions of authority. Um, and not just in the traditional gender roles of, um, you know, uh, family caretakers, mothers and daughters, um, et cetera. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to have to let this um, intervention speak across the panel because now we do have a few people waiting to to ask questions and we only have limited time, um, and I do want to give everybody a, a voice. So uh, we have first uh, Rachel Martin, who is, uh, has a question about human rights for women dealing with violence. Please go ahead, Rachel. Yes. Hello. Thank you to everyone on the panel. The work that's being done is, is really phenomenal. My question is um, to the people who are uh, at the Wilson Center who represent the United States. Um, is, it, is it possible to start looking at the United States uh, the issues here through the same lenses that are being used uh, in the other regions. Is there work being done there at the Wilson Center that we could use um, comparatively to the other areas that are being represented? Thank you very much. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if any of our panelists has a, a quick thought on that. I actually have a have a thought on that because in my book I did do some brief comparisons to trends and issues in the United States. And um, I think that, that a lot of us are trying to bring the United States into comparative perspective, at least from the standpoint of academic analysis. I also know that there are um, sort of best practices being developed across organizations. Um, when, I was, when I was in Taiwan, they hosted the fourth international conference of women's shelters. And so there are public policy models in which the U.S. Uh, US nonprofits generally are exchanging with their global counterparts. We do have a bit of a um, we do have a bit of a reluctance on the part of uh, U.S. official governmental programs to participate as fully in multilateral organizations and, and places like UN Women as uh, I think we would all like to see from the standpoint of uh, an engaged scholarly analysis of this issue. Um, would anybody else like to like to respond more to the, the parallel, or are you aware of U.S. organizations or programs in, in exchange with your regions? Okay. Um, so again, I think, the, I think the understanding has grown at the scholarly level, and I think that the grassroots people-to-people -people level um, particularly in terms of policy and interventions, there are exchanges taking place. 
Um, all right, so uh, now again, to make sure that we do have a chance for more voices here, I'm going to move to Maggie Reuter from the Inter-American Foundation. Maggie, please. Hi there. Yes. Thank you all for this great conversation today. Foundation is working uh, to channel additional resources to our grantee partners in Latin America and the Caribbean right now. And one of the big challenges we're um, facing alongside our grantees is thinking about what best practices might be with running shelters right now. I think for some GBV things, you can do psychological support via phone, legal support via phone. But what about the shelters? Does anybody have insight on what some best practices might be right now? Great. Um, uh, Leah, has the, has the uh, IDB done any work on that in your technical exchanges? Uh, I think we may have lost her. Uh, Laura, are you aware? Uh, you, you talked a little bit about this in terms of um, the, the funding and the hotel spaces. Um, I mean, so definitely I would say in Eastern Europe, there's like best practices. Um, a lot of what, so the organization that I work with here in Latvia, Marta Center, um, they've done a lot of visits uh, sponsored by the State Department actually uh, to NGOs in the United States to learn kind of best practices um, from them. And so, and then they apply them here. Um, that's definitely happened in Ukraine and Russia as well. Um, Russia is much more difficult because of the foreign agent law in Russia, basically, if your organization is sponsored more than 50% uh, from other entities outside of Russia, you're declared a foreign agent, and it's much more difficult to operate there. Um, so I definitely think that there's learning practices of NGOs within Eastern Europe. I would say in um, Russia, the Caucasus and Central Asia, it's a bit more difficult. Um, but I do also know that Marta Center, the organization here in Latvia, actually goes and does work in Uzbekistan. So they're kind of transferring best practices from the U.S. to Latvia and then actually working um, in Central Asia as well. So I think we kind of do see a diffusion of maybe best practices that they've gained from the U.S. I don't know if that exactly answers your question. <laughs> Well, it's a similar phenomenon to what I was reporting with the International Conference of Women's Shelters taking place in, hosted in Taiwan, but really drawing participation and diffusion. And, and one thing I want to point out, um, it looks like we have lost uh, Leia, so because I have some knowledge of uh, one trend in Latin America that, that specifically answers this question, there is a diffusion, particularly across Mexico, of uh, a model developed in the U.S. of one-stop centers where there's an integrated shelter, health, and um, legal assistance, uh, as well as sometimes some vocational training and, and attention to children. So that idea that social services, law enforcement, um, and health support are, are integrated in one space, that may become particularly useful um, in the pandemic when, you know, if you can barely get somebody to one place and you certainly can, can uh, save them from having to circulate across different institutions, across different spaces when we're under conditions of uh, social distancing. Uh, we do have time for one more question. We have one more person in the queue. And, uh, of course, I'm very happy for purposes of gender equity to have Michael Contreras uh, join us. He's from Rutgers University. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you very much for this wonderful conversation and to the panelists and to the Wilson Center for organizing this 
platform. My contribution speaks to um, the narrative around gender-based violence, and I think one thing that is crystal uh, clear is around the issue of women being oppressed across cultures in Africa and Latin America. But um, gender-based violence covers a multitude of things, and most times I feel like the narrative is only around the physical manifestation of this violence, and little or not much attention is given to the, the psychological, the emotional, and the verbal abuse, and in the area of COVID, economical abuse that, that is taking place. So I am I'm asking the panelists to speak around to that. I'm happy to hear one of the panelists talking about um, men and male involvement and men being allies to fighting and being advocates. I consider myself an advocate of uh, gender-based violence issue, especially as it pertains to men and women. The fact that we do not have data on male violence doesn't mean it does not exist. There are cultural sensitivities that are attached to that. So how can we change the narrative to be having uh, a community dialogue as to the manifestations of violence and how do we mitigate it only not dealing with the symptoms that we see, which is the physical aspect. What's happening within our cultural practices that is allowing men to be brutal to potentially their mothers, their sisters, their aunts, their wives. And I think that aspect of the conversation has not been given enough uh, resonance to others. So can the speakers, uh, maybe there are research work in Latin America that's been done around this world because there are work that has been happening within the African continent around this, this uh, area. So I would love to hear as well around that. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is a fascinating question. And um, again, I'll be kind of standing in because my own work does touch on Latin America too. In the book, so Brazil is part of, of my beat. And uh, there are some wonderful programs working with young men on alternative masculinities and on finding alternative ways to channel uh, their own challenges um, and, and get away from the use of violence, which has all kinds of benefits for society. Um, there, there are also some programs, so the ProMundo organization has been, has been tremendous there. Um, and there are some similar organizations in South Africa and India that come up in the cases in, in my book, so I can, I can speak across that issue. Um, but I do note, as we begin to talk about this, that the pandemic conditions, lockdowns, limitations on mobility, on group gatherings are going to very much interfere with those responses. Um, Marissa, Laura, do you have anything that you'd like to, to add? We only have a minute left, I'm sorry to say. I can just add something. So, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to mention the stigma, right? So we've talked about the stigma of gender-based violence with women, but, I mean, with men as victims, that is, a, is amplified twofold. Um, so I think it kind of takes a reframing and a, you know, different focus that it's not just violence against women, it is gender-based violence and it's something that can affect everyone. Um, I also think we need to also focus on the way that gender-based violence affects kids and families, too. So it's not just something that affects women. It's something that affects their children as well. It's something that affects men. It can affect everyone. And so it kind of, I think, takes a reframing and a different focus to be able to be more inclusive of, you know, the different facets of this crime. Great, great. 
All right. Well, I think that that is a, a, a wonderful place uh, to land, and um, this has been such a rich and informative conversation, although it's certainly sobering and difficult to hear that this problem that was already so horrific has, has been getting worse. I think we are also looking at a variety of creative responses and solidarity and simply increasing knowledge, increasing attention to this, which you have all done by your participation, is an important part of the solution and, and of the response. So thank you very, very much. And uh, I, I hope uh, to have other opportunities to engage with all of you and keep working on this problem. And uh, thanks again to the Wilson Center for hosting this conversation, which I hope will be the first of, of many on these important issues. That concludes today's conference. You may disconnect at this time, and thank you for joining.